Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Got a Bible this morning. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're kind of new to the Bible, uh, the Bible's in two parts the Old and New Testament. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And we'll get there in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up there on the screen in back of me. If you're new with us, last week we started a series and we looked at the sensitive issue of sex in marriage. This week it doesn't get any easier. We're looking at the difficult issue of divorce. I realize that few things are more painful, more heart-wrenching than divorce. And I don't want to do anything to add to that pain today. As we come into this sensitive, difficult issue, I know that all of us here in this room have been affected either directly or indirectly by divorce. Each of us has been touched by divorce in this room, and so I want to I tread lightly and yet bring clarity, recognizing that all of us are fellow strugglers along the journey of life. And yet we need clarity on this issue, don't we? We, we live in a culture now where nine out of 10 people are getting married. Of those, a half are getting divorced. Half of those marriages end now in divorce. And those who choose to remarry, two-thirds will experience divorce again. And so our, our culture is telling us that divorce is okay. That supposedly you married the wrong person. And so you've got to now find the right person. And if that doesn't work, find another person. After all, you deserve to be happy. I stumbled across an article this week by a secular author called Jumping Ship. Jumping Ship. And here's the tagline. Getting out of a dead marriage. This author quotes from several real people who jumped ship on their marriage, many of whom are over 50 years old. Divorce is on the rise for those after 50. And so most of these quotes now that I'm going to share with you are coming from people in their 50s and 60s, and as the author encourages them, hey, it's not too late to walk out. It's not too late to jump ship and find happiness. And so take a look at some of these quotes. They're like thought bubbles in the minds of these people. Kind of gives us a window into our culture. Here's the first one. Well, we had a good run. We loved each other at one point, but, but life just became unmanageable. Here's the most common. I just married the wrong person. I hear that a lot. Oh my, this is who I'm looking at for the rest of my life? You guys can laugh, it's okay. There's no need to suffer for the next 30, 40 years. I have a lot of runway left. I'd rather be lonely alone than really lonely in a bad marriage. These are all feelings, thoughts in our minds. I, I just feel trapped, and staying married isn't fair to her or to me. Just listen to the voice in your head. It'll steer you in the right direction. And don't beat a dead horse, right? Our marriage is dead. Why? Don't beat a dead horse. 
And finally, you have only one life. If you can't make it work, get happy. I mean, try to get happy. After all, you deserve to be happy. Maybe you have had those thoughts or similar thoughts, if you're honest, in this room today. Even as Christians, we can often have thoughts that shock us when they pop into our minds. And I don't want to pretend today that every marriage in this room is, is going well. Maybe your marriage is really struggling right now. I've been praying for you this week. Maybe you're feeling like you're trapped, like you're sinking. And the impulse is to jump ship on your marriage. If that's you, you're not alone. I want you to know that you're not alone. Even if you're a Christian today, this is nothing new. In fact, the same thing was happening in the city of Corinth. As you recall, the gospel had invaded this city, and people were responding to Jesus, who had died and was risen again from the grave. They were giving their life to King Jesus, and some of whom were in a marriage relationship already. Some... In that marriage, one person trusted in Christ, gave their life to Jesus, and the other was still, still living for themselves. And so there was this tension, there was this frustration in the marriage, and, and they wanted to get divorced. Paul speaks to that in this text today in 1 Corinthians 7. In fact, he, he responds to two different scenarios, two different situations with married couples in the church at Corinth. The first situation we're going to look at is where both are believers in Jesus and one wants out. One is considering divorce. The second situation is where one is a believer in Jesus and the other is not. And that one believer is asking the question, well, now since I've become a Christian and I'm married to someone who's not a Christian, can I jump ship? Because we're never going to be on the same page. I'm never going to be able to prosper spiritually. And so Paul addresses that. In fact, his main point for both scenarios is this. Stay married. Stay married. Don't get divorced. And he's going to give us three reasons why. Now, before we get to those reasons, before I read this passage, I want to say a couple things. First is this. This is a huge, huge topic to cover in one sermon. And there's no way I can cover it from every angle. And so as we're making our way through this text and making our way through the message, if there's a what if that pops in your mind, a question, write it down. And feel free to, to get with me sometime this week or even shoot me an email. One of us pastors, we would love to sit down and talk with you more about it. Secondly, We've, we've got to enter into this issue with humility, and that is so hard. I can feel, perhaps, the resistance for some of you this morning, and it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's painful. Maybe there are preconceived ideas, and I just want you to come into hearing from God with a heart that's filled with humility this morning. And so let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the word of God. I'll start with verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so Paul's main point, again, is stay married. Stay married. Don't get divorced We see this clearly in this text, and then he gives us three reasons why, and we'll see the first reason in just a moment. But first, just a few observations. You may be wondering, what is this parenthetical phrase, not I, but the Lord? What does Paul mean by that? Well, Paul is simply saying that he received this teaching on divorce, on remarriage, from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus had already taught on divorce and remarriage in several places in the Gospels during his earthly ministry, and so Paul is reminding the church at Corinth that these words are coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. Now, we see in verse 12, when he refers to a believer married to an unbeliever seeking divorce, notice he says, now, I, not the Lord. So so what does this mean? Does this mean that now I'm speaking, so this is just my good advice Uh, So if you want to listen, go ahead, but Jesus really, his words carry a lot more weight. No, that's not what Paul means. What he means is that Jesus didn't specifically address this situation. So these are words from the apostle Paul, and nevertheless, they carry the same weight of authority. Why? Paul was a chosen apostle. He had seen the resurrected Christ and had been commissioned by Jesus Christ under the authority of Jesus Christ to write words of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't have a red-letter edition Bible. (laughs) Paul believed that every word was from the mouth of Jesus himself, whether directly or indirectly through the Holy Spirit of God. So... Both Jesus and Paul have authority in their words. Now, another observation, you may have observed that in verse 10, Paul uses the word separate, and then in verse 11, he uses the word divorce. Back then, there was no legal distinction between the two. The word separate, the word divorce, meant the same thing. Now, the only distinction was to separate usually meant the wife walking out. The word divorce meant the husband pushing the wife out, and yet they're synonymous terms. For example, we'll see this verse in its context here in just a moment, but Matthew 19, 6, Jesus says this, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. He's referring to divorce. And so we see here that, that Paul's heart is for his readers to remember the words of Jesus And so should we. And so let's take a look at Matthew chapter 19. If you want to flip over there or just look up on the screen, we're going to look at these verses and see Jesus' teaching on divorce. And Pharisees came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that 
He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so here we come to our first reason why we should stay married and not get divorced. Reason number one, your marriage was created for oneness and permanence. Your marriage was created for oneness and permanence. Notice in the context here, the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. They're asking him questions so as to get him caught in a contradiction of the law of God. And yet Jesus, we we can't ruffle Jesus' feathers, right? He's in control of every conversation. In fact, he, he moves the entire discussion on divorce, on these grounds of divorce, to the goal of marriage. That's his focus. He challenges these Pharisees to remember Genesis 1.27, that God created us male and female. And he quotes from Genesis 2.24, that the two will become one flesh. So, so what is Jesus doing? He's reminding us of the goal of marriage is oneness and permanence. And he's telling us the definition of marriage is one man and one woman coming together in one flesh under God. Incidentally, this is why same-sex marriage is not only wrong, it's non-existent. There is no such thing. God defines marriage. We can't redefine what God has defined. Having said that, I want us to be a church not only known for its convictions, but also for its kindness. When it comes to this issue in our culture today, please, please, if you're a follower of Jesus, please don't respond in a snarky, judgmental tone toward those who struggle with same-sex attraction. We've got to be a church that stands on the Word of God and holds tightly to our convictions And at the same time, we got to be known for our compassion and our love and our kindness toward those who are struggling with something that may, may be so complex we don't even understand it all. And so just that word of warning, we want to be a safe place for people to wrestle with their questions because, listen, we're all sexually broken in this room today. You know that, right? None of us here is without sin when it comes to this issue of who we are. Paul says your marriage was created for oneness and permanence. Notice how he uses this language of oneness. It's repeated in these verses. Verse 5, he says to hold fast to one another. Be united as one. He says, the two shall become one. Then in verse 6, he says it again. They are no longer two, but one flesh. This means that your marriage was made for oneness and is to be marked by oneness. That's why last week we talked about how it's it's not just this physical oneness in marriage, it's also spiritual oneness, emotional oneness. I would even say financial oneness. Oneness in every sense of of the word. Your marriage was made... For oneness. In fact, the word one is the same Hebrew word used to describe God's oneness in the Trinity. 
as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God. So your marriage was made for oneness, but not only oneness, your marriage was created for permanence. In verse 6, Jesus says again, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So listen, if you're married in this room today, God has joined you together in a permanent, intimate bond never to be broken, which is why divorce is so tragic because it, it, it rips apart, it tears apart the fabric of God's design in marriage. A marriage that points to the oneness that he shares in the Trinity. Not only that, divorce also turns a covenant into a mere contract. You know the difference between the two? A contract is merely a business agreement where you need to keep your end of the deal. If not, then we're no longer business partners, right? Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant says something differently. It says, I've made a promise to you before God and before witnesses. I'm devoted to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you. I'm staying with you and committed to you. And so Jesus says, stay married. Don't get divorced. Why? Number one, first reason, your marriage was created for oneness and permanence. Now, you may have noticed we skipped over the first half of verse 11. We're going to come back to this at the end when we talk more about remarriage briefly. But for now, I just want us to move to the second reason why we should stay married and not get divorced, and the second situation of one believer married to an unbeliever and wondering if they should stay in the marriage. So again, we look here in verses 12 to 13. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So, so we hear this refrain, stay married. Don't get divorced, is Paul's point again. And remember the context here. The gospel has, has penetrated this city of Corinth. People are coming to know Jesus, and, and one person in the relationship responds to that gospel. I want to live for Jesus. And the other one is not there yet. And so it may have been tempting to think, well, should I get out of this marriage since I'm a Christian now? Should I just jump ship on my marriage because we're never going to see eye to eye? And Paul says, no, no, don't jump ship. Stay married, stay the course, and then he gives us reasons why. Now, before we get there, let me just say this. Some of you are living this right now. And praise God, you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You became a Christian, yet your spouse is not yet a follower of Jesus. And it's the hardest thing in your life. God understands, God knows, and I want you to listen to some hope-filled words coming next. And so Paul says, stay married, don't get divorced. Reason one, your marriage was created for oneness and permanence. Here's reason number two. Your entire family is under your influence. Your entire family is under your influence. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 
Now, this seems really confusing, right? If we're honest, we look at this verse and we think, what in the world does he mean? Is Paul saying that if you're a Christian, then everyone else in your family instantly becomes saved as well? No, he's not saying that. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. You don't become a Christian by mere association, right? You don't get a seat on the mercy train just because your family member's there. That doesn't happen. What he is saying is this, that as a Christian, you can have a huge influence on your family. That's what he's saying. You can have a huge influence on your family. Your relationship with Jesus, your holiness and righteousness in Jesus impacts those who are in closest proximity to you. That's what he's saying. You will affect your unbelieving spouse. You will rub off on your children. Now, he uses this term that they will be made holy, which seems confusing for us, but literally, this word means to be set apart. We've seen this already in 1 Corinthians. The word means to be sanctified or set apart. It can be used either spiritually or relationally. And so I think what Paul is getting at here is, in a sense, your family is now living in a sphere of holiness because you are becoming more and more like Jesus to them. You might think, well, hey, doesn't my unbelieving spouse also have a negative influence on me and my kids? Yes, and yet Paul says just the opposite. He says your holiness, your love for Jesus is powerful and contagious. It, it made me think, maybe kind of in a, an analogous way, of uh, Jesus cleansing the leper in Matthew chapter 8. And so maybe you recall in the Old Testament, if one was to touch a leper, that one would be unclean. And yet Jesus comes up to this leper and touches the leper. And what happens? Jesus isn't defiled. Jesus cleanses the leper. It's the power of Jesus and his holiness that cleanses this leper. Now, again, we don't have the power to cleanse or to save, but our family is under our Christian influence. And so in a real sense, they are apart from unbelievers in this evil world with greater potential to be saved. Your entire family is under your influence. And so Paul's main point, again, is to stay married. Don't get divorced. Your marriage was created for oneness and permanence. Your entire family is under your influence. And then third, final reason is this. Your spouse could be saved through your witness. Your spouse could be saved through your witness. Verse 16 says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So these are, these are hope-filled words but I want to clarify something. This verse is not a license for Christians and non-Christians to get married. You might think, well, if I'm a Christian, I can influence my unbelieving fiancé, and when we get married, he's going to change. She's going to change. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6.14 about being equally yoked later in chapter 7, of 1 Corinthians verse 39, you're free to marry or remarry as long as he or she belongs to the Lord. And so the Bible stresses that you must be equal, Christian marrying another Christian. 
To marry an unbeliever, as one author puts it, would be a partnership where one person is trying to sing a song and the other person is singing a whole entirely different song. So you sing, I want this song to be about Jesus. And your spouse sings, it's just you and me. And there can be no ultimate harmony there. Having said that, once you are married, Paul says, stay married. Don't get divorced, as your spouse might be saved through your witness. In a parallel passage in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, Peter now speaks directly to wives with unbelieving husbands. And these are hope-filled words. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I wish I had time to to see this verse in its context and to see that even as believers in Jesus, your life matters. As the world is looking upon you, perhaps in slander, as you live a life of purity, the gospel can penetrate that person's heart. Here we see in the context of a marriage, an unbelieving husband can be won over by his wife. Notice it says, one to Christ without a word. When they see a difference in you. So I ask the question, does this mean that someone can become a Christian by someone's Christian behavior alone? And the answer would be no. We know that from Romans 10, 17 and other places in scripture where Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. A person becomes a follower of Jesus by hearing the gospel and embracing what Christ has done for them on the cross. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that wives can be a powerful witness to their husbands as they live a life of love and of humility and respect and purity. So instead of a nagging word, instead of a grumbling word, instead of a self-righteous word, you speak a gentle word, a kind word, a respectful word, and look for opportunities to share words with your husband and live a life worth questioning. Live a life worth questioning to where they're wondering, hey, what's different about you? Why do you have peace in the midst of this difficult circumstance? Live a life worth questioning, as it says in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope or an answer for the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. So pray for your spouse if you're in this situation and keep praying. Keep praying and admit your deep dependence upon God to do what you cannot do, you know that your life has been changed by Jesus Christ, and so the hope here is that your spouse's life can be changed by Jesus. This is not a promise, but it does give us hope that God can open the heart. And so stay married, Paul says, don't get divorced. Why? Your marriage was created for oneness and permanence. Your entire family is under your influence, and your spouse could be saved through your witness. Now, the question I know that you've been thinking as we've been making our way through this is, well, are there any exceptions to this? I mean, are there any biblical grounds for divorce? That's one of the most frequent questions that I get as a pastor over the years. Tell me, is is there any legitimate biblical reasons for divorce and remarriage? And there are. Scripture gives us just two And I want to remind you, divorce is never commanded in the Bible. 
It's not. It's never commanded. It's never God's intention. It's always a tragic concession. God hates divorce. And he knows the fallenness and the brokenness of this world, and so he does permit it in two different cases. First, first exception is for sexual immorality, sexual immorality. Matthew 19, 8 and 9, Jesus says these words. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce, to divorce your wife. Notice, allowed you to. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except, notice the exception clause, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus says that divorce is permitted in the case of sexual immorality. Essentially, this means sex outside of marriage with another partner. This is adultery. This is not just having an affair. This is, this is sin. This is adultery, and it violates the oneness of the marriage covenant. And yet, it, it must be said that divorce is not commanded when this happens, especially especially, especially if the unfaithful spouse shows genuine repentance over it, over this. And I know this is terribly hard. Reconciliation, though, is much better to work toward than the heart-wrenching decision to get divorced in most cases. Nevertheless, listen, if there is an ongoing, unrepentant, marital unfaithfulness, in other words, a pattern of sexual immorality with no signs of, of wanting to change, no signs of wanting to get help. Biblically, then, divorce is permitted. So that's, that's the first exception. The second one, so not only sexual immorality, the second one is abandonment, abandonment or desertion. In 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, Paul says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so if, if the unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage, in other words, he or she is initiating the divorce and doesn't want anything to do with trying to seek reconciliation, doesn't want any counseling, doesn't want any help, the Bible says that as a believer, you are not enslaved. There's nothing more that you can do but to allow it to happen. There's no use trying to rescue the marriage if your unbelieving spouse refuses to stay in it. And so those are, those are the two biblical grounds for divorce, sexual immorality and abandonment. Now, what about remarriage? You may be wondering, what about remarriage? Well, these are the only grounds where one is free to remarry as well in the case of sexual immorality or abandonment, and desertion. Of course, we know if your spouse dies, you're free to remarry, but many choose not to. It's a conscience issue. This is why Paul says back in verse 11, I skipped this before, in verses 10 and 11, he says to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So it's on the, the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment, you are free or permitted to get divorced and remarried. If not, Scripture says stay single or be reconciled to your former spouse. Now, if you're already married to that person, it doesn't mean, oops, I need to get out of that marriage because I sinned to get into it. Stay, stay, in, stay in your marriage. Hopefully that goes without saying. 
So here's what Jesus says. This is what Paul says. This is God's word to us on this issue. There are no other outs biblically. Having said that, I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, what about abuse? I mean, what about my situation? You don't know my story. Aren't there any other exceptions other than those two? And I will say this about abuse. This is a very complex when we think about this. If that's you, if you've been struggling in that marriage or you know of somebody who's been struggling under physical, emotional abuse of any kind and it's ongoing, first thing I'll say here is you need to get help with that and don't stay quiet about it. Come to the church and get help. Uh, get others who can help you. Perhaps Biblical wisdom says you need to step away from the marriage and separate from your spouse and all the while seek to reconcile. Don't be quick to pursue divorce, but if reconciliation isn't possible, in other words, if that spouse continues to say, I want to continue to do what I'm doing and not change, not get help, I believe that that's a form of then abandonment and you are free. You are free to divorce again permitted, not commanded. So much for us to look at, but I want to end on a few words of application, so listen to me. Here's the first kind of folks I want to talk to. For those of you who are struggling in your marriage today, maybe even considering divorce, I would just say don't do it. Don't listen to those little thought bubbles we talked about at the very beginning that come into our heads, telling you just to jump ship and don't run to your friends outside the church who are going to give you what you want to hear. A lot of times when we're going through struggles in our marriage, we don't talk to someone here. We talk to people out there who give us answers and give us advice that look a lot like that thought bubble. You, you just married the wrong person. You, you deserve to be happy. Why are you staying in this marriage? And you begin to think to yourself, yeah, you're right. I, I do deserve better than this. And maybe I did marry the wrong person. Listen, that's such a lie. we got to reject the whole idea that you somehow are married to the wrong person. That's a myth. That's a lie to think there's a right person there for you who will make your life happy. Guys, marrying the right person won't somehow fix your emptiness and solve all your problems. Only Christ can do that. The truth is, Marriage is all about two flawed sinners and one faithful God, and we cling to him when life is hard. So in your struggles, in your doubts, don't look for a way out. Look for a way up. Don't look for a way out. Look for a way up. Don't jump ship. Stay the course. Seek out help. Every marriage, honestly, I'm saying this, every marriage, mine included, we all need help, right? We all need a tune-up. We all could benefit from counseling from someone else speaking into our lives. So, get help. Secondly, for those who have a quote-unquote good marriage, I would just say praise God. Uh, that's only by His grace that your marriage is in a good, a good place right now. But, but don't coast. Don't think, well, I, we've been married for 30 years now and nothing will ever change. It's okay. Don't get lazy and stop working on your marriage. I agree with Paul Tripp when he says this, the greatest danger to a good marriage is a good marriage, right? We've got to keep moving toward Jesus, not just as couples, but as individuals. I think what matters most in your marriage is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you fighting holiness? Are you growing in godliness? Are you pursuing Christ even on your own and, and fighting against your sin? It's like a triangle, right? 
If you're moving toward Jesus and your spouse is moving toward Jesus, you're going to move closer together as well. Thirdly and finally, for those of you who have been divorced or have felt the effects of divorce firsthand, I just, I just want to speak words of compassion here and I just have two more minutes. Don't pretend that divorce isn't heart-wrenching. It is. And it's always the result of someone's sin. And yet we're all sinners here in this room. And so don't believe the lie that you're carrying around a scarlet D around your neck and you'll always have it there. And don't think of yourself as somehow a second-class Christian because you've experienced divorce. No, there is grace and forgiveness for all of us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross He has taken all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and has thrown them as far as the east is from the west. I love what it says in Psalm 103. It says, he does not deal with us according to our sins. Hear that this morning. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I want you to imagine two piles. Here's a pile of all your failures. And they stack up so high in your mind. But over here is another pile of of God's faithfulness and kindness and mercy. And there is no comparison between the two. This mountain of God's mercy is infinitely higher than the mountain of sin. And listen, if you are in Christ this morning, that mountain of sin has been thrown into the sea and swallowed up by God's mercy and love. So we're going to end our service with this lyric, and I love this new song we're singing, Thrown Into the Sea. Without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray together. Father, we need your mercy. We need your help in this room. You know every person's heart. And you know the struggles, the pain of the past and even the present. And you're a God who pursues us in your great love. Father, I pray that even now in this moment, if there's one who has never given their life to Jesus, would come to you even now. You would grant the gift of faith and say, yes, my sins are many, but your mercy is more. You've died for me on the cross and you've risen again. I believe in you. Save me from my sins. Help me to follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.